Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today I'm speaking with Greg D. Caruso. Greg is a professor of philosophy at SUNY Corning. He is also a visiting fellow at the New College of Humanities, NCH London, and an honorary professor of philosophy at McGuire University. He is also co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network, housed at the University of Aberdeen School of Law. His research focuses on free will, moral responsibility, punishment, philosophy of law, jurisprudence, social and political philosophy, moral philosophy, philosophy of mind, moral psychology, and neurolaw. His books uh, recently include Rejecting Retributivism, Free Will, Punishment, and Criminal Justice, which is just premiered in 2021, and also Just Desserts. Debating Free Will, co-authored with Daniel Dennett, also for 2021. And that book is, the latter book, is what we talk about uh, in this episode. Greg and I had a wide-ranging conversation about many topics discussed in his book with Dan Dennett, and I really, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, This was great talking to Greg. Uh, We had a, a fun discussion and a very interesting discussion, and also, I think, a very consequential discussion. Um, both for interpersonal and for global and societal importance. Um, like I said, I, I really enjoy this episode, and I'm very grateful to Greg uh, for speaking with me today. Uh, I'll leave links in the description f- below um, to his recent books and to find out more information about him. Uh, so without any further preamble, please enjoy my discussion with Greg Caruso. Well, I guess uh, by way of starting, I just want to say thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so you've written, uh, you've co-authored this this new book um, called Just Desserts, Debating Free Will with uh, co-author Dan Dennett, and it seems to be wildly successful. I, I know we talked, I had trouble even getting a, my hands on a copy of the book. Yeah, it was, it was uh, out of stock for a little while on Amazon, but it's back. <laughs> yeah, congrats on the success. Thanks. And you also have a, uh, a solo authored book, um, Rejecting Retributivism, which is yep. currently out, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious because I haven't gotten to read any of that book yet. Do you see that as sort of a um, your own part two to this exchange? Yeah, so that's a, that's a book I've been working on for a lot longer period of time. It's sort of been in a gestational period for, for many years. And so it reflects a more mature, fully developed account of my view. Um, there are aspects that overlap between the two books. Um, some of the issues I deal with in rejecting retributivism come up in the debate with Dan Dennett. Um, but the book um, lays out sort of six distinct arguments against what's called retributive justice or retributive punishment and then develops my alternative. But a lot of the book deals with the issue of free will um, and moral responsibility, which is sort of the central focus of the book with Dan. Um, so I would say that it's more for an academic audience and mm. is a sort of um, mature statement of my current view worked out in sort of exhausting detail. <laughs> um, and I deal with a lot of criticisms and objections in, in that book. Um, whereas the book with Dan is a more accessible book written for probably a more general audience and um, and sort of reflects our disagreements and, and uh diverging views on free will, punishment, moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think the the format of a dialogue back and forth between you two really serves to make it accessible because you're anticipating questions that readers on either side of the debate might have. Um, and so I, I like the style. I think it was the first, it was the first 
full length book maybe that I've ever read that was in the dialogue format. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a obviously there's a rich history of of philosophical dialogues when you go back to Plato. Um, and Hume wrote in, in dialogue form as well. Um, but that was always written from a single sing, singular author, um, setting up a kind of straw man at time, <laughs> and then obviously re representing their views in this kind of dialogue fashion. Um, I found it really, yeah, I found it a really uh, rewarding process um, to, to have your ideas uh, put in juxtaposition with some of the strongest opposition and opponent that you could come up with um, really is a, is a kind of um, unique task that, you know, professional philosophers um, should try once in a while. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, I think we both represent our views well in the book. I think the reader will at least walk away with a better understanding of, of the issue and hopefully a better understanding of our views. I think we get to clear up some misconceptions about our reflective positions. Um, and, um, you know, I hope it's a rewarding process for, for the reader. It definitely was for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is the perfect book to hand to someone who is skeptical that philosophical debates can matter for the real world. I mean, you guys just go into detail on the pragmatic consequences of believing what either of you believe. Um, yeah, I mean, so that uh, that's been something in, in in terms of my own work. I've I've tried to uh, stress quite a bit is that for me, I try to problematize the issue of free will um, in terms of issues that would have really you know would have practical importance in our everyday lives. So that's actually something Dan and I agree with to some extent in that we both see um, free will as uh, intimately connected with issues about moral responsibility and also having, um, obviously because of its connection with re moral responsibility, a connection to our legal practices, um, our uh, conceptions of morality, our interpersonal relationships, and, and even public policy. And in Rejecting Retributivism, my other book, um, public policy and the practical implications of my view are um, on center stage because that was a big part of what that project was about. So. Mm. Um, you know, I originally, well, let me just, I guess, state up front, I'm a free will skeptic. Mm -hmm. So um, I either doubt or deny the existence of free will, but I'm very particular in that I define free will as the control and action that's required for a particular type of moral responsibility, the kind of moral responsibility that would make us truly deserving of praise and blame and punishment and reward in what's called a basic sense, i.e. a purely backward looking sense. Mm. Um, so for me, free will is the control and action that's needed to justify various practices, policies, judgments, treatments, things like um, reactive attitudes, things like resentment and indignation and moral anger and retributive punishment. So I'm a free will skeptic in that I believe who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. Um, and because of that, we're never morally responsible in this basic dessert sense. Mm -hmm. So that has um, wide reaching um, consequences in terms of our interpersonal relationships, whether certain types of judgments and uh, reactions like resentment and indignation and moral anger are justified, um, and whether certain practices and policies like retributive punishment, retributive justice are, are uh, justified. I argue they're not because those um, particularly things like retributive punishment, uh, moral anger, purely backward looking moral anger, presuppose a kind of free will and moral responsibility 
I claim we lack. Mm -hmm. And when you say that we lack the type of free will that would justify uh, retributive um, attitudes or retributive actions, uh, you're, I take it you're referring to a libertarian notion of free will. Well, that's an open question. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So the terms in term in terms of the literature, right? Mm -hmm. There, and in the book, actually, we lay out some definitions in the mm. introduction, which is helpful for people who haven't or uh, not familiar with the debate. But um, the traditional debate um, emerged in response to what is known as determinism. So the idea of determinism is the thesis that every event or action, including human actions are the inevitable result of preceding events and actions in combination with the laws of nature. Um, basically, it's a thesis that facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature uh, entail as only one fixed future. And so the question is whether is like, well, if determinism is true, can agents be free and morally responsible in the required sense? One view is called compatibilism, which is a view Dan defends, Dan Dennett, hmm. is that determinism and free will can be made compatible. Um, you could be both free and causally determined. Um, the libertarian view, not to be confused with political libertarianism, <laughs> this is a kind of metaphysical view. Actually, this view came before the political view. Yes. Um, but this kind of uh, libertarian view maintains that if determinism is true, we don't have free will. And if determinism is true, agents can't be held morally responsible in this fundamental sense. Um, but libertarians believe that we do have free will. Um, and so they reject the idea of determinism and they defend a kind of um, indeterminate notion of free will. Um, and then there are different ways of cashing that out. Dan and I both reject libertarian accounts of free will. Um, and, you know, we say a little bit about why in the book, I say a lot more about it in, in my book, Rejecting Retributivism. Um, and basically, I, my view is that the different versions of libertarian free will, and there are essentially two. One is called agent causal libertarianism, and one is called event causal libertarianism. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but um, agent causal libertarianism imparts certain kind of causal powers to agents. That agents are unique substances. That is, they're more than just a collection of events. They're more than just their physical makeup. They're more than just um, brain activity and brain events and neurons firing. And that agents as substances have a sui generis kind of uh, causal power. The ability to be essentially uncaused causes. That is the ability to be the cause of their own actions without themselves being causally determined by antecedent events. And it's the agent him or herself um, as a substance, as a unique thing, separate from their makeup, um, that's capable of initiating action in this way. Um, Dan and I, I think, both agree that that conception is hard to reconcile with our naturalistic and scientific view of the world. Um, and there are other reasons to reject it. Um, on that account, reasons aren't really causes. And, and then that mm. is somewhat problematic because that, in, that jeopardizes the notion of rationality and rational agency. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, it's just, it, it requires certain kinds of um, causal powers that would go beyond the kind of naturalistic worldview that Dan and I share. Event causal... Do you think, oh, so, sorry to interrupt, do you think that um, agent causal libertarianism uh, entails a certain type of dualism or does it just imply it? So there are different 
agent causal theorists who cash out this notion of agency in different ways. Um, in many cases, um, it's somewhat mysterious. <laughs> so like uh, Descartes, who many people know as a, as a substance dualist, mm -hmm. um, he was also an agent causal libertarian. So he clearly is a dualist. Mm. Um, others are just mis um, are, are sort of undefined in terms of their metaphysical commitments about what agency has. And then others embrace something called radical emergentism, where the idea is that somehow a unique substance can emerge um, out of uh, the lower level physical constitutive parts. Mm. But it requires a kind of emergentism um, that is also a very radical in fact it's called radical emergentism and it tends to be a rather controversial notion about whether or not that that kind of emergentism can be made sense of especially yeah. within a naturalistic conception of the world um then i think there are sufficient reasons for rejecting this view the other version just introduces indeterminacy at the level of events it says all there are in the universe are physical events, a series of physical events, so nothing mysterious, but they um, have to reject determinism to preserve free will, so they introduce some indeterminacy somewhere in that causal sequence. The main objection to that view is that um, indeterminate events seem no more within the control of the agent than determined events, and so sometimes that's cast out in the notion of luck. That it seems simply a matter of luck what ultimately occurs um, because uh, if, if it's true metaphysical or ontological indeterminacy, if you were to rewind the tape, if God were to say rewind time and let it play out, you would get different results every time. And the agent isn't really making the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I actually prefer an objection called the disappearing agent objection that Dirk Piraboom gives, which says that on that account of libertarian free will, the agent disappears at exactly the moment that's, that's important, which is the moment in which the agent settles which outcome occurs. Hmm. Um, and so since the agent lacks the kind of control and action that would be needed for free will, I argue that it doesn't preserve the kind of moral responsibility needed for basic desert. Um, and so essentially I'm a free will skeptic because I go through all the different views. I present different distinct independent arguments for why we should reject each of them. And then I argue that free will skepticism is the only you know, remaining rational view to adopt. It's sort of by default, we have to be free will skeptics because none of the other views succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I technically am neutral about determinism. Uh, my view is sometimes called hard incompatibilism. Sorry for all the labels, no. <laughs> but it basically means that we would lack free will either way that free will is incompatible with the truth of determinism, i.e. agents being determined by factors beyond their control, but it's also uh, incompatible with the kind of indeterminacy that's required by the leading accounts of libertarian free will. Yeah. So whether the universe is deterministic or indeterministic, <clears throat> I argue that we would lack the kind of free will under dispute. I also have a separate argument. It does come up in the Dennett book. Um, which is uh, uh, based on luck. Mm -hmm. I say, regardless of whether or not, you know, the universe is deterministic or indeterministic, the pervasiveness of luck swallows all. Because luck, again, is a factor that's beyond the control of the agent. You know, the luck of um, the lottery of life, the luck of who your parents are, the luck of whether you're born white or black, male or female, rich or poor, what your genetic lottery in life was, those are all matters of luck. 
whether you're born with a learning disability or whether you're born with um, you know, reasons responsive capacities or psychopathy or learning disabilities, all a matter of luck. That's what's called constitutive luck. Hmm. And then present luck is the kind of luck around the time of action. The luck of like, you know, where your mind wanders at that particular moment. The luck of what reasons become most salient in your deliberation and weigh most heavily in your decision. The luck of the color of the wall can influence your, your present choices in ways we're unaware of. So the combination of constitutive luck, the kind of luck that makes you who you are, makes you the kind of agent that you are with your own unique psychological makeup and predispositions and present luck, um, the luck of, um, of uh, what's occurring around you, the luck of where your mind is, the luck of what reasons become most salient, the, the luck of whether your mind wanders or doesn't wander at the right or wrong moment. Uh, if you're a libertarian, the local indeterminacy would be a kind of present luck. Um, the combination of, of constitutive luck and present luck um, um, uh, ultimately account for all of our moral actions. And luck, I argue, undermines free will and more responsibility because, again, luck is a factor um, or a feature of the world that's beyond the control of, of, of the agent. So this is why I say my thesis is who we are, and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And now we could say, well, that could mean determinism, indeterminism mm -hmm. or luck, because those are all factors beyond our control. And because of that, I argue we're never morally responsible in this very particular sense, this basic dessert sense. There are other senses, I argue, um, of responsibility that can be retained. But the notion that is central to, I think, um, things like retributive punishment, moral blame, the kinds of moral practices that we're discussing, I argue, um, that kind of moral responsibility um, has to be rejected. Mm -hmm. You Okay, so you said something there that cl actually clarified one of the questions I had, um, <clears throat> because on, on if I can read you just a quote from page 179, I, I highlighted this as a question. Um, you say, uh, this is you replying to Dan, you say, second, as an incompatibilist, I contend that the kind of control in action required for basic dessert moral responsibility would be the kind presupposed by libertarians, especially agent causal libertarians. And unlike you, I do not think that such a notion is incoherent. Um, I was curious on when you say that such a notion is, is, uh, not incoherent, is that notion a agent causal libertarianism? Um, yeah, so that's a good yeah. question. Yeah. So, so I guess this is referring to a debate that sometimes has had. So inside baseball within, within the literature of, there are sort of free will skeptics who think, um, the notion of free will itself is incoherent. Mm -hmm. Because I think I would agree with that. Yeah, that because it requires being like a cause of sui, a cause of oneself. And Nietzsche, I think, was the first to kind of argue that notion is just incoherent. <laughs> um, and Galen Strassen gives a kind of version of this argument contemporary times. Um, um, I tend to think, look, I tend to think event causal libertarianism, just by its very nature, doesn't... Um, uh, retain the notion of, of the, the kind of control and action that would be needed. Mm -hmm. I think agent causal libertarianism, if true, 
would preserve exactly what's needed. It would preserve the kind of control and action that would make agents morally responsible in this sense. Hmm. But I think there's good reason to conclude we're not free in the agent causal sense. But I don't think the notion is incoherent in that I think that it's possible that in some possible world, um, some far off distant possible world, um, <laughs> agents could have um, agent causal uh, libertarian free will. Um, yeah, I just I think in our world governed by our laws of nature, governed um, by our best scientific and philosophical theories of the world, there's good reason to think or reject that idea that agents have that kind of free will. But mm -hmm. I don't personally find it incoherent, mm -hmm. although that gets kind of complicated because then you get into what do you mean by possible? Do you mean metaphysically possible, logically possible? <laughs> so maybe maybe that's a tough, you know, uh, yeah, it's a more complicated notion that I'm leaning on to. Yeah, yeah I've, I've always just thought, I, I guess I did accept the incoherence of it as put forth by, by like Galen or Nietzsche, where yeah. um, it, it always seemed to me that if agents were, had the capacity to like step out of the stream of causation and, and yeah. act without respect to prior causes, that would be akin to, that, that would almost just put you in the realm of event uh, causal libertarianism, where it's just, right. it, it would seem unconnected to anything at that yeah, point. Yeah, so that's an objection, uh, and that's a good one. I mean, there's a good objection against agent causal libertarianism that they actually can't preserve the control and action that's required any more than event causal libertarians really could, that the additional causal powers that we attribute to the agent doesn't really get around the luck objection. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's some truth to that. So, you know, it's a, I, I, I guess I'm on the fence about the coherence <laughs> issue. Um, I think it depends on what you mean. And I, I, uh, for me, it's like logically coherent. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I can imagine a world in which, you know, the metaphysical commitments of Descartes are true and maybe agents could have this kind of power. But yeah, I, you know, it's unclear whether or not that account or having those powers would itself preserve control, that, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of control that's needed as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be, it's the kind of, of libertarianism presupposed that, you know, Yahweh would have, you know, for instance, yeah. which, but I, but I also just feel like, there I mean, are paradoxes there too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it, if, it, if you want to call it incoherent, the incoherence would be based on that divide between, you know, th these are like, his actions would be based on nothing, yet somehow also in line with who he is. And that, that seems hard to square. Yeah, so that's a problem for the agent causal theorists is that they somehow have to make the reasons for action um, not be the causes, because that would be right back into determinism to some extent, mm -hmm. um, but somehow relevant to the probability of the agent choosing in a particular, and there are sophisticated accounts out there. Um, Timothy O'Connor is one person who kind of try to answers that challenge and gives a, I think it fundamentally fails, um, but uh, it's a complicated set of arguments as to why, why his um, account fails that I think, um, in my view, um, doesn't mean the view is incoherent, it just means it faces a number of, of serious objections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we both would agree that it's not true. So, yeah. 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 Um, and, and the interesting thing is that the very next sentence, I very much agree with, and it, it seems like Dennett, um, doesn't agree. So, so you, you go on to say, 
nor do I think that it's irrelevant to the issue of free will. Quite the contrary, it's the kind of control in action we typically believe ourselves to have. And you cite um, the famous Nichols and Nob um, 2007 study. Um, and you say, I, I therefore reject the libertarian notion of free will, not because I think it's incoherent, but because our best philosophical and scientific theories about the world count strongly against it. But the previous sentence, um, I think, is very important. And it almost comes across as, you know, it, in not so many words, Dennett is almost, he, he seems to either be denying that anyone does buy this notion or that it's important to anyone at all. And, and I think both of those views are deeply mistaken about, especially the lay person, but, but even a minority of philosophers. Yeah, so that's a good, it's an excellent point. And there's certain things I got Dan to commit to in the book that uh, <laughs> I hope people, you know, end up seeing and, and thinking yeah. about. Um, because, you know, it, it hasn't always been clear in some of his other writings. But one thing he says, and I think it's right in the um, first exchange at the end, um, is that essentially he's defending a revisionist account of free will. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of glossed over. But so let me just go back for, for the viewer just to kind of give a, there are many compatibilists who say that um, compatibilist free will is the ordinary notion of free will that the folk have are essentially pre-theoretically compatibilists. Mm. And then there are others who argue that, you know, um, no, the average person, sometimes in the literature, they're called the folk, having to do with folk psychology, when ordinary people who are not philosophers tend to think, um, know that they're generally libertarians. Uh, they believe in libertarian free will. And there's a lot of controversy about this in the experimental philosophy literature. I tend to think that um, ordinary people are libertarian and that they have a libertarian conception of free will. And there's some good reason and, and, and good evidence to suggest that's the case. That if you give them a sort of description of a deterministic universe and an indeterministic universe, and you say, which of these universes do, do we actually live in? They argue that we they 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 argue they claim that we live in the indeterminate universe. Mm -hmm. um, there's even works on the phenomenology of agency, how people experience their own actions, and it seems like people experience their own actions in a libertarian way. They don't feel like their actions are causally determined. They don't feel like um, that their choices are determined by antecedent events or upbringing or genetics or brain chemistry. They feel a kind of freedom that devoid of all of those antecedents, they could still choose A or B. Um, and Dan sort of acknowledges that. He's like, yeah, the, the, the people have lots of false beliefs. Um, <laughs> the people, you know, ordinary people believe a lot of crazy things about free will. Um, and instead what he seeks to preserve is what he calls the kind of the free will worth wanting. So he thinks that we could sort of um, shed all of that craziness or what he would consider craziness, all of those libertarian commitments, all of the inflated aspects of control, um, and still preserve sort of a, um, a, you know, a refined and philosophically, um, you know, um, more concise and, 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 and revisionist notion of free will. So in the literature, um, you know, most compatibilists are, are, are often taken as thinking they're defending the common sense notion of free will. There are, however, a few like uh, Manuel Vargas who have actually um, defended a view they call re revisionism. And I see Dan Dennett as an early proponent of revisionism, although he was never sort of labels as, as such. 
-hmm. So Manuel Vargas, for example, um, looks at the experimental philosophy, the X-Fi literature, and says, yes, the folk have a false belief. They believe in a, a kind of libertarian free will we don't have, that Manuel thinks we don't have, that I think we don't have. Nonetheless, he thinks we have to separate the descriptive project from the normative project. Mm. And he says the descriptive project is simply to um, accurately describe what the people believe. And he says what, they, what the people actually believe is um, they believe in a kind of libertarian free will we, we don't actually have. But the normative project is to defend a kind of free will that's worth wanting, that um, is important to our moral practices, that essentially can preserve moral responsibility. Because mm -hmm. he thinks it's real, and Dan does too. He, they both think it's really important that we don't give up the idea that individuals are morally responsible or deserve praise and, and, and blame and punishment and reward. The idea of just desserts, which is what the title of the book is, which isn't deserts or what we eat after dinner, just desserts <laughs> simply means the punishment one deserves. And Dan really wants to preserve that notion of just desserts, that certain people deserve to be blamed or praised, punished or rewarded. And so what um, the revisionist sometimes says is, look, descriptively, the people are wrong and they believe in a kind of free will we don't have, but um, we can engage in this normative project of revising a conception of free will that would do all the work mm -hmm. that we philosophically want the notion of free will to do. Um, the one thing I would say right off the bat about that is like, okay, at least we'll acknowledge that you're defending a kind of free will that isn't the kind of free will that ordinary people believe in. And that in itself is a major concession. Yeah. Um, but the second thing is I, I would argue that actually they're mistaken in even the revisionist project in that I don't think um, the kind of free will they set out to defend actually can preserve these, at least for me, the basic idea of uh, basic desert of, of more and agents are more responsible in this fundamental sense. So I think that they're wrong on, on two accounts, but sometimes people completely miss the fact that Dennett is a revisionist and that um, he acknowledges right at the beginning of the book that he's not seeking to defend a kind of free will that ordinary people believe in, which I think sometimes flies under the radar because many other compatibilists um, claim they are. Mm simply defending the common sense notion of free will that, that ordinary people believe in. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, he doesn't do himself any favors by brushing past it so quickly. I mean, I feel like part of, if you want to be a revisionist, part of your project has to be explaining why you don't find the libertarian notion um, really you know, valid or sound. Um, and, it, and it seems like a lot of revisionist literature wants to just skip right past that and get to putting forth the positive conception where I think you have to spend more time taking down people's uh, lay notions about it first. Yeah, you know, look, I totally agree with you. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know my view. Um, if I were to be charitable to the other side, I think um, when we theorize about certain concepts, it gets complicated. Um, and so if you look at the history of say scientific theorizing or even the history of certain ordinary conceptions like fish, and witches. Um, generally, we go in two different directions. So sometimes we have a kind of notion, a theoretical, no let's just use fish. Sure. Um, or whale. Let me, sorry, go with whale. So in the past, um, individual people thought whales were fish. 
Um, and fish in a scientific theory means a very particular kind of thing. And it turns out whales were not fishes, they were mammals. They, they breathe air um, through their blowhole and they, they require oxygen and they can't breathe underwater. So under the scientific classification of fish, whales are not fish. So when we discovered that whales are not fish, um, we had two options abandon the notion of whales, say, look, people just had a false theory about whales. It turns out there's no such thing as whales. Or you revise the conception of whales. We say, well, we believed whales were fish. It turns out they're not. And so with whales, we decided to revise the concept and preserve it. With notions like uh, phlogiston, um, which was this kind of mysterious substance, kind of like oxygen, but different than oxygen. And it turned out that, well, phlogiston doesn't exist or vital forces uh, don't exist. We could have revised the notion or we could have eliminated it. And, and in those cases, we eliminated it. Witches, for example, was a term we had for women that we burned at the stake in the, in the 17th century for, for exhibiting certain types of behavior. Um, when it turned out witches didn't have you know, magic powers, um, we could have revised the concept of witches or we could have ab you know, abandoned the concept of witches. So it's interesting, the history of scientific theory, some concepts we revise and keep and preserve when we discover that we had false beliefs about them and others we simply reject. We reject witches, we reject phlogiston, um, we preserve whales. Um, and this is currently you know, a debate that's happening now in race theory. The notion of race used to be tied to certain biological notions of differences between agents. Now it's really hard to ground the notion of race in biology. So some people propose eliminating the concept of race. Others propose preserving it, but revising it, freeing it of these false beliefs and turning it into meaning something else. So I, I kind of acknowledge that there is a there is legitimate grounds for debate about that. You know, like the concept of free will is a theoretical term. It's a term of art and we have to define it in a certain kind of way. And I don't mind philosophers doing that. Um, but I just want them to be crystal clear about wh what it is they're taking the notion to, to mean. I am very clear about what I mean. I <laughs> define free will again as the control and action required for basic dessert more responsibility. And in a way, Dan agrees. We don't have that kind of free will because he rejects basic dessert. Instead, he wants to defend a kind of watered down notion of dessert that he calls non-basic dessert, which is really consequentialism. He just thinks preserving the practice as a punishment, preserving the practice as a blame, um, simply because they produce good outcomes means we could preserve the notion of dessert. And I say, well, that is a different debate. I would argue that the notion of dessert is so fundamentally tied to its retributive roots. It's so mm -hmm. fundamentally tied to the idea that individuals deserve something simply because they had done some, some act, you know, that you deserve punishment because you committed some wrongdoing. Um, and when you think of retributivism, it's very clearly defined in that way. Retributivists define um, punishment for them. A retributivist means um, absent any excusing conditions, mental you know, incompetence or something. Wrongdoers morally deserve to be punished proportion to their wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. But for the retributivist, that punishment is somehow intrinsically morally good i.e. it's good simply on the grounds that the agent deserves it, not because it produces any forward-looking goods, i.e. 
um, it's not because it deters crime or makes us safer or helps morally form the agent or educate them in some way. No, no, no. The, the retributivist says, I don't care if the punishment produced it, none of those forward-looking goods. It's still deserved because it's purely backward-looking. Um, and what I argue is that agents don't have that kind of moral responsibility. They don't have, we don't can't ground that kind of basic desert because again, who we are and what we do is the result of factors beyond our control. For me, it would be um, a form of moral malpractice to blame you know, individuals in this fundamental sense for things they, that were beyond their control. Dan, however, defines his notion in a slightly different way. And that's, that's part of the problem is um, he's not using the notion in exactly the same way that I'm using the notion. Um, and so there's a lot of crosstalk in some, in some, some regard. Yeah, I, I've always agreed. Um, I think it was Tamler Summers who said, if you want to be an honest to God compatibilist, your position can't reduce to just consequences because exactly. the, the moral skeptic has that too. So, so exactly. where, yeah, so, so then it's like, I mean, it's just, it's a semantic difference only at that point. Right. So that's why, and I argue this throughout the book, and I go back and forth with Dennett about this <laughs> is that, you know, like, look, Dan, your view is indistinguishable from a certain strand of uh, free will skepticism because the, the skeptic can still say that for consequentialist reasons, i.e. for forward-looking reasons, um, we could still engage in certain types of moral protest. You could still justify certain types of deterrence-based justification, excuse me, for punishment. Um, now, I don't personally, because I think they suffer from certain kinds of objections, but mm -hmm. th there are there are consequentialist forward looking um, approaches that are open to the skeptic. That can't be what the free will debate is about. If um, the skeptic and the compatibilist could agree that those kinds of practices are justified. So we must be debating something else. If the debate is substantive in any fundamental way, um, the thesis you're defending has to be controversial and to be meaningful. You have to be defending a kind of blame, a kind of punishment, a set of practices that the skeptic would reject. Otherwise, there's no fundamental disagreement between the skeptic or the, the believer in free will and the skeptic about free will. Hmm. And my view is that most, most compatibilists do fundamentally disagree. They are trying to defend something more than what Dan is trying to defend. They are trying to defend um, a more basic conception of moral responsibility. And I would argue that they can't for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it's odd because Dan agrees with me about that, but still holds on to some notion. And I wonder at, at fundamentally um, what kind of compatibilist is he actually? And I actually give him a several options at the end of the book. I say, look, you could be any of these seven varieties of compatibilist. Mm -hmm. And I try to spell it out and I say, well, which one are you? And he always refuses to label himself. Yes. Um, and I find it you know, sometimes frustrating because I'm very precise about my definitions and I'm very clear about what I mean by various things. And Dan likes to skirt any, any, any firm isms. Um, and so he's sort of like, well, I'm none of those, or, um, or I, I'm not going to answer it. Or, yeah. um, and so I'll just leave it to the readers to judge for themselves in the end, like what his compatibilism ultimately amounts to. But um, for me, um, I'm very clear about what it is I'm denying and what it is I'm not denying. And if that's not what you mean by free will, then, uh, then we're fine, right? Um, but I think most philosophers in the contemporary literature mean what I mean. 
And so yeah. for that reason, I think it's important. I also argue in other places, there are really, really good reasons to define free will in the way that I define it. And so if you're going to define it in some other way, you have to address all of these reasons I give for why we should define it. And one is the one you just mentioned is simply, if we don't define it in this way, then I don't understand what the substantive dispute is really all about. Because mm. free will skeptics could adopt forward-looking justifications. It has to be that we're debating something more fundamental about that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's really important. And then I sort of, and, and another point I asked sort of Dan, like, you know, look, I wouldn't be, I, you know, I wouldn't be upset. Of course, this sort of favors my view, but I wouldn't be upset if we just all dropped the notion of a free will because it is so controversial. It is so loaded. Different people mean different things by it. It's like whale or flow just in, you know, like it's bendable and amendable to whatever it is you want, you know, this notion to do. Maybe we should directly just talk about various practices and ask, are those practices justified? And I would be happy to do that as a free will skeptic. Um, I'm also a moral responsibility skeptic though, because I think those things stand or fall together. So I would just say, okay, let's drop the notion of free will. Let's eliminate it. Let it go the way of witches and phlogiston. Um, and instead let's ask, is more backward looking moral blame justified? Is retributive punishment justified? Is resentment and indignation morally justified? And I would argue no to those. Um, and you know, that's where it's unclear. Mm -hmm. Dan says, well, I'm not a retributivist, but I want to preserve some notion of just desserts. I'm not a retributivist, but I want to preserve some backward looking notion of blame. And there's a lot of um, uh, lack of clarity in my understanding <laughs> of, of how to cash that all out. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me just say, I mean, you, you said, uh, you know, you leave it to the reader to, to discern for him or herself. And as a reader, I was not really able to fully grasp what, if someone asked me, what is Dan Dennett's position? Um, it, he's clearly a compatibilist, but I, I, I even made a note. He, he almost like defines himself as a, like a common sense compatibilist um, where he says, yeah, I, I can't, I won't be able to quote it verbatim, but he says, you know, like in sports. Um, yeah. Uh, if you uh, commit a penalty, you deserve a yellow card in soccer, whatever. And if you argue with the ref, you deserve a red card. And and it shouldn't. But then it, he seems to he seems to equivocate on two senses of deserve when he talks about this, though, because he he then says, and it, and someone else on your team wouldn't deserve the um uh, the the penalty. And that's right. But but in that move, it seems to me that he conflates an evaluative sense of a deserve with a uh, dessert or or extra consequentialist notion of deserve. Uh, yeah, and I, that's, yeah, that's the part I tried to always sort of nail him down on. Is it mm -hmm. just purely consequentialist or even instrumentalist? Yeah, you know, like, well, we just need to preserve this notion of dessert as a placeholder uh, because it produces good outcomes in society. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's what you mean, I'm less in disagreement with you, but I just think we should drop the notion of dessert. Yeah. So like, it, you know, for me, if you have a really watered down notion of what you mean by dessert here, well, maybe some other notion could do all the same work, like causally responsible. The guy who gets the red card is causally responsible for committing the foul. Or the person who... Um, uh, shoots the victim was causally responsible for the death of the victim. We could say all of that, 
without necessarily saying the individual is more responsible in this basic sense, if let's say their reasons for killing and their predispositions and their psychological makeup are the result of factors beyond their control. I argue that certain people can be subject to certain consequences. I argue that uh, dangerous individuals could be incapacitated uh, for the safety of society. And so if, if he means by some sort of non-basic notion of desert that we could simply license certain consequentialist practices um, because certain individuals are causally responsible for the actions that they commit and therefore, you know, incapacitating them would produce better outcomes or giving them a red card would preserve uh, the security of the game or something. Then mm -hmm. I think, well, maybe we're, we're more in agreement. Um, yeah. But, but if you fundamentally are trying to preserve the notion of deserve, then I think we are, we are in dis fundamental disagreement. Um, and so for me, the notion of just desserts isn't all that, you know, difficult to cash out. I mean, for me, the notion of just desserts is traditionally understood in a very retributive manner, generally um, believed to, um, you know, uh, be purely backward looking. And so for those reasons, I think not only should we abandon the notion of free will, we should abandon these other practices and these other notions, um, whereas Dan disagrees. But it's, again, sort of odd um, that he's a consequentialist in why he wants to preserve these, these notions. So yeah. like one way to do it is the way that Kant did it. And there were, you know, Kant's notion, and I asked Dan about it, and, you know, and again, in a way, Dan gives away the ball game in his agreement with me. But Kant was a, uh, um, a retributivist. Kant believed in free will. And Kant also believed in the death penalty. Kant <laughs> believed that if you committed murder, the only fitting response or the only fitting punishment was death. Not all retributivists have to agree with that, but his example involves the death penalty. So he says, imagine an island society um, and that um, the members of this community are gonna dissolve their social contract and they're gonna scatter themselves across the globe. They're all gonna leave the island. But um, there's one remaining murderer in prison. Kant says, is the last person, um, the last individual before they leave the island, are they justified in executing this one remaining prisoner? Kant's argument was that not only are they justified, they're obligated. Now, not all retributivists <laughs> will say obligated, but they yeah, will right. say justified. And the argument, is a, the, the, the thought experiment is a really interesting one because it, it, it brackets all the forward-looking considerations. We wouldn't be executing this person or let's just say punishing this person for deterrence reasons. There's no one left to deter. You, you wouldn't be punishing this individual for their own moral education or benefit because you're executing them, they can't learn anything by killing them. You're not punishing or executing this person for public safety or to protect individuals because there's no one left to protect, right? You're not executing this them because they could be threat to others. Let's say this island is sufficiently isolated, no one else will ever discover it. Um, and so they would be left alone. The only reason Kant thinks you should punish this individual is that they have to be given their just desserts. Mm. Is purely backward looking. And I say that's what's at stake in the free will debate, that kind of moral responsibility. Do you, agents have that? And Dan, it says no. 
And I sort of say, well, then the skeptic sort of wins. Yeah. Um, but he says, no, but that's not the sense that matters. The sense that matters <laughs> is the red card sense, the, the consequentialist sense. And I sort of say, well, no, because the free will skeptic can acknowledge that there are other senses of responsibility. There are other reasons to gauge in, 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 in moral uh, um, uh, um, dialogue and, and even moral protest. And there's reasons to incapacitate dangerous criminals. Those are all, you know, totally okay and consistent with free will skepticism. You must mean something else by just desserts, and I think that this is what people mean. Yeah. And by the way, it's definitely what the layperson means mm. when they think about eternal damnation and eternal punishment. Right? Um, you could imagine an afterlife scenario. It doesn't have to be eternal damnation, eternal hell. Think of it like the good place. Right, like the, the show, the TV mm -hmm. series, The Good Place, but make it like a little bit like throughout your life. It's kind of like this was the premise of the show. Throughout yeah. your life, you have a ledger that's <laughs> keeping track of your good deeds and your bad deeds, and you get points in this magic ledger. And then what your total number is at the end of your life will determine um, what quality of life you'll have. You'll mm -hmm. send it to the good place, the bad place, the in-between place, right? Yeah. Whatever that character is, like, you know, everything is sort of bland yeah. in her world, right? And, you know, she she has, uh, you know, like warm beer and- Yeah, um, like raisin bran cereal. Made, you know, yeah. it's not hell, it's not heaven, it's somewhere in between, right? Yeah. Um, and I would say, imagine two agents, um, let's just name them, Maya and Marina. Mm -hmm. And we'll put them in two different universes. Maya is the universe A, Marina is in universe B. And let's be a determinist, because compatibilists try to argue that you could be free and more responsible even if determinism is true. So let's say both universe A and universe B are deterministic, i.e. from the moment of the Big Bang, the laws of nature are such that whatever unfolds in each of these universes would be completely determined. Mm -hmm. by antecedent events in combination with the laws of nature. And let's say universe A is set up such that from the moment of the Big Bang on, um, Maya is uh, causally determined to rob a liquor store on her 21st birthday. And she does so in, in a way that satisfies all the compatibilist constraints. That is, that the reason she has is egoistic, um, that the reasons are part of her personality, she does it because she's not externally coerced, but because she has internal psychological wants and desires, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and let's say Marina is also in a deterministic universe, but that the universe in universe B is set up such that from the moment of the Big Bang on, she's causally determined to give uh, $1,000 to a charity on her 21st birthday. So here you have what would otherwise look like a, a, a blameworthy act and a praiseworthy act. Mm -hmm. Now, part of my, my argument would be like, okay, if both of these universes are completely deterministic, and if Maya's actions and Marina's actions are ultimately the result of factors beyond their control, would it be just to differentiate, give different treatments in, in the good place or the bad place or the medium place, that mm -hmm. is, send them to giving them different treatments in, in, this, in this afterlife. Now let's assume that in this afterlife, there would be no forward-looking benefits to punishing them or uh, blaming them or praising them or giving them um, 
more VHS tapes or less VHS <laughs> tapes or cooler beer or warmer beer, there would be no benefit to mm -hmm. differentiating any type of praise and blaming, uh, punishing, rewarding um, types of treatment. I think the average person believes, you know, that in some fundamental sense, individuals need to be given their just desserts. But then I think the average person would also agree that, it, well, in a deterministic universe, that might seem to be unfair. These agents couldn't have done otherwise. These mm -hmm. agents weren't the ultimate source of their actions. Things were set up from the beginning of time, such that Meyer would rob the liquor store and Marina would give to charity. That in some fundamental sense, they can't be held uh, morally responsible in, in a basic sense, if they're there, if what they do is and who they are is ultimately result of factors they don't control. Hmm. And so I think that the average person is a libertarian and the average person believes in basic dessert. Yeah. Yeah. And no, so I couldn't agree more. I think the compatibilist challenge is to say, how would we be justified in treating these individuals differently? How would we be justified in giving the just desserts? Mm -hmm to someone in a situation where there would be no forward-looking benefit, where it'd be purely backward-looking. That's what you need to defend as a compatibilist. And if yeah. that's not what you're defending as a compatibilist, then I think the fundamental disagreement um, and the dispute about free will um, is, is we're not arguing about the same things. Yeah. And, and I mean, you spelled it out perfectly because it can't be cashed out in consequences. Again, like if you say, well, this person deserves to go and get cold beer, it, it can't, it just, it can't be, if that, if the notion of deserve there is parasitic on, on consequences alone, then again, it's just, it just collapses into something the skeptic could say. Yeah, because um, I think the, the skeptic could say, like, look at parenting. Hmm. Like when my daughter does something wrong or gets in trouble at school, let's say, um, I, I question her, I engage in moral dialogue, I might even engage in some form of moral protest. And, and so the kind of more uh, conversation I think is consistent with free will skepticism is if you were to say, um, engage in a practice where, look, you say, well, why did you decide to do that? Do you think that was the right thing to do? In my view, the skeptic can still preserve axiological judgments of right and wrong, good and bad. Even mm. if you give up the notion of basic desert moral responsibility, you could still say that what Hitler did was bad, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you could say for whatever reasons, deontological, consequentialist, whatever your, your, your ethic, ethical theory is. Um, and so what I would say is like, look, I could ask my daughter, you're right, what, you know, did you, what, you know, why did you do that? Do you think that was the right thing to do? Do you think um, there's some aspect of yourself that was the reason why you did that? Do you mm. think maybe work, moving forward, you can work on, on trying to reconcile or improve that so that you don't engage in those kind of actions be, in the future? And I would argue that that kind of moral exchange is totally justified because it's grounded not in basic desert, but it's grounded instead in, in three forward-looking non-desert desideratum, i.e., future safety, future reconciliation, and future moral formation. As a parent, part of my job is to turn my daughter into a good moral being, to help form her as a moral agent. And you could use interventions, you could mm -hmm. use consequences, you could use um, um, moral dialogue as a way to get agents to reflect upon their actions so that in the future they can make better decisions. And that kind of forward-looking set of practices, I think, can be preserved 
um, in a way that's consistent with free will skepticism. Mm -hmm. If that's all that you really want to preserve, then you, then you don't need to preserve free will or basic desert to do so. You could do it as a skeptic. So for the free will debate to be meaningful, you have to be seeking to defend something more meaningful than that. You have to be, in my view, defending a deeper notion of desert, yeah. a deeper notion of just desserts that is more in line with what Kant is thinking about mm. or the analogy of Maya Marina, what kind of dessert would be uh, warranted in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, that's the, I, I don't think that that kind of forward-looking set of considerations is problematic for, for the skeptic. Yeah. The, the other thing that I, I was honestly kind of laughing to myself about when I was reading this um, uh, book is, <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, in, in the past, because um, because a lot of our discussion has been about um, kind of global or societal or, or um, uh, punishments or, or something as a practice. But I was thinking more also about the interpersonal side. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was, I was you know, laughing to myself thinking, I, I actually cannot think of a time where I have um, succumbed to the retributive impulse and not regretted it. It, it oh, has, good, it, good, it yeah, has yeah, never, yeah. I mean, it just yeah. flat out has never um, produced an outcome that I wanted that was beneficial to me, that was beneficial to the other party. It's just, I mean, it just vitiates like yeah. interpersonal relationships. And I was curious if That's you shared point. that. So, yeah. I, I am actually what I call an optimistic skeptic. <laughs> um, you know, some people think if you um, adopt the skeptical perspective, it's going to lead to nihilism or despair or undermine morality, or we just have crap have to let criminals run free. Yeah. And so what I've been trying to do in my work is systematically go through the various domains and argue that we can preserve everything we care about. And that actually it'd be more beneficial to give up these notions than to preserve them. Mm. And, and, and in line with what you were saying, um, on the interpersonal level, I tend to think that things like resentment and indignation and moral blame um, are more counterproductive and suboptimal I also think they're unjustified because I, I those so what I what I think is that look certain reactive attitudes certain react or emotional responses the retributive impulse or resentment or anger um, um, those I do think presuppose free will and basic desert and so if I'm right those types of emotional responses would be unjustified but I also think that um, as you point out that in many cases they're suboptimal and actually do more harm than good. But I also think that you can have replacement attitudes. So instead of moral anger, which I think is unjustified, one could express sorrow or disappointment. Mm. So like, for example, if my daughter um, does something wrong, instead of moral anger or expressing a retributive impulse, which I think again would be pedagogically counterproductive, um, I think it would be legitimate to feel disappointment. Mm -hmm. And disappointment could serve that teaching point that I mentioned earlier, that educational point. Hmm. Um, you know, so I, I tend to think that you're right. Emotionally, these, these reactive attitudes, which, you know, compatibilists want to bend over backwards to preserve, one might want to more deeply question whether or not they're actually worthwhile than preserving in the first. Now, I think they're unjustified, but I also think that they're more harmful in, in, a, in a certain sense that once we abandon the belief in free will and give up the notion of just deserves, that individuals justly deserve to be punished or praised or blamed in some fundamental sense, I think we can more clearly look at the causes um, and, and, and more deeply into the systems that shape individuals and their behavior 
And that will allow us to adopt, I think, a more, more humane and more effective practices and policies. And yeah. I think that's true on the interpersonal level, but I also think that's true on the criminal justice level, the law level, and the level of public policy. And so a lot of my more recent work is to actually explore the implications of free will skepticism for public policy. Mm. And I think that there are major um, implications there that I think are, are worthwhile. And one is in particular is retributive impulses. I think the retributive impulse has been somewhat responsible for the mass incarceration crisis, has been counterproductive. It actually doesn't reduce recidivism. And it actually in many cases makes um, the issue of public safety worse, not better. And so, you know, not only should we reject it for the reasons that I give about free will, but even if you don't agree with me about free will, one might want to question whether or not these things in a forward-looking sense are actually beneficial. And in many instances, I think they do more harm than good. And for that reason, I tend to think the notion of just desserts is a pernicious notion, one that we should give up. I also think it's esoteric, uh, um, uh, outdated and unjustified, but I also think it's generally pernicious. Mm -hmm. Whereas then it thinks the whole world will crumble and society will cease to function properly if we were to give it yeah. up. And I don't think there's really any good evidence for that. No, he he said, you know, he said that uh, if we followed your view, we would we would regress into the dark ages or something like regression. Yeah, he, or he says like, oh, life would be solitary, poor. Death. And I said, there's no reason to think that because we could generally preserve most of our institutions, most of our moral practices, axiological judgments of right and wrong and good and bad would would uh, still remain in place. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah, if anything, in my view and yours as well, it's, it, it seems like it's the opposite. I mean, th those um, those barbaric times were predicated on this notion of of desert and getting back at someone in retribution. Yeah. Um, and, and they I mean, clearly, by anyone's standards, weren't for creating good consequences because the consequences were terrible. Um, yeah. And, and, and the idea was the consequences, uh, even if they weren't good, um, were justified on the grounds that exactly. the individual deserved it, and so it didn't. It didn't matter whether it produced poor outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I find it you know odd to give consequentialist reasons. Uh, yeah. The other thing you know, the other thing I would say is sometimes I like to use the analogy um, of um, replacing the moral context with an artistic or aesthetic context. So like I wrote this paper on free will skepticism and creativity. And I argue that you can even preserve what we care about there. As long as you define creativity and originality in um, relativistic terms, i.e. in comparison to one's contemporaries. So you could say Miles Davis was an original artist or Einstein was extremely creative in that they were able to engage in, in artistic and creative endeavors that were original in comparison to what others were doing at the time, right? Hmm. Um, and, but I'd say, look, we have to give up the idea that people are fundamentally praiseworthy, hmm. um, it, just like we have to give up the idea that individuals are fundamentally blameworthy in some basic sense for, for producing original art or for producing. But then I use the example of art critiques because for uh, a while I was a chairperson of the humanities department uh, here in my department. And I had art faculty that I um, supervised. Um, and you know, I would have to sit in on classes and evaluate them. And one of the things I often like to do was sit in on the art classes. And, and I, would I would see my faculty engage in those practices of art critiques where students put up their work of art in the front of the classroom and all the students give their feedback. Mm 
and the and the faculty member also gives their feedback. And one of the things I, I realized, you know, in, in that process is very similar to the moral context in that, well, what's the goal of the 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 this process of critique? Well, the the fundamental goal is to help the agent, the artist, develop into a more successful and better artist, just like the purpose of the moral dialogue or exchange I described that you could have with your daughter is to develop a kind of moral personality, a moral agency, to make them better moral beings, like the artistic realm is to make them better artists, right? If you're, if that's your goal, um, and that's what you're aiming to do, um, it's actually pedagogically harmful to blame agents for their their aesthetic choices, right? Mm. You don't say like, why did you choose yellow here? Yeah. And then yeah. like express some retributive attitude. Yeah. Or say that was a hard, and blame them for that choice. No, what you say is you do exactly what I described earlier. You say, okay, I, I see you made some choices here. What were the reasons for those choices? What was the thinking behind it? Mm -hmm. Do you think you could have made different choices? Would those choices have produced a better outcome? Okay, do you think maybe moving forward, we could um, engage in and make different types of choices or work towards making better choices mm -hmm. that would produce a better outcome for you as an artist or for you as a moral person? Mm -hmm. And that is all forward looking. But what you often see when you shift the context from the moral realm to the uh, artistic realm is that you could also see that certain reactive attitudes would be harmful in that context when, you're, when your goal is education. Yeah. And yeah. I think we're also trying to educate moral beings into making better choices, just like we're trying to educate creative students to make better artistic choices in becoming better artists. And, and you can often find that, right, if you were as a teacher exhibit anger, that would probably turn off the student. That would not encourage the student. It would be counterproductive from the perspective of trying to produce a better outcome. Yeah. And I think that same is true when you shift the context to the interpersonal realm and morality is that moral anger is often corrosive to our interpersonal relationships. It often turns agents on, they won't listen to you. Whereas if you're less retributive, less blamey, um, <laughs> um, and you're, and you're um, engaged more in forward-looking practices that would produce better outcomes, then I think you often can get some kind of reconciliation with mm -hmm. an agent who's wronged you. You could uh, better uh, succeed in, in the goal of moral formation and moral education. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, so I want, I'm, I'm honestly wondering if you might find because I think I, I've got mixed views about Strauss's reactive attitudes. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm curious what you think about, about that. So the, um, you know, his, his basic claim is that we, we cannot give up the reactive attitudes altogether. We can't fully regress into the objective attitude. And at least in interpersonal relationships. And I find that claim to be descriptively correct of me, um, which is to say like, I, I, and it's indicative of, it, it seems to me there's direct correlation or relation actually between um, how, how close I am with someone um, or how open to being close I am with someone and my, my default to the reactive attitude. So with my best friend, I really fully inhabit the reactive attitudes um, with him, it, positive and negative, of course. And it, that's juxtaposed to 
especially strangers with whom I have some sort of a disagreement, I'm very prone to lapse into a, the objective attitude. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what your, and it seems like, um, you know, as Strassen says, both are open to us, uh, but it seems like for, for myself, and I'm curious what your experience of this is, uh, it, it seems like there is some sort of an imperative um, of maintaining the interpersonal relationships in, in both parties kind of inhabiting the reactive attitudes, uh, both positive and negative, whereas because there's no interpersonal relationship with strangers, that, that imperative doesn't really exist. Um, and, I, and I'm curious if you find that incompatible. Yeah, so I, I, yeah. I've written a lot about this and I say some things about it in the book on rejecting retributivism. Mm. I think there's a number of things and, and so I have to differentiate a yeah. few, but um, I guess, you know, one, one immediate response is that um, the Strassonian project, I think, is to presuppose our everyday practices and then say within those practices, what is justified and what is not. And what I want to do as a, as a global skeptic is doubt the whole system, the whole mm. moral responsibility system, the whole dessert-based system. Um, and so... I think that if you play the Strassonian game, you're, you're already engaging in a losing strategy because what Strassen wants to do is to say that the only grounds one could have within the set of practices for um, a, a mitigating responsibility or alleviating um, the uh, blame of an individual is to make them incompetent in some way. Mm. And, I, I, and I feel like um, what I don't wanna do is what Bruce Waller calls excuse extensionalism. That is extend excuses uh, further and further so that no one ends up being blameworthy or no one ends up being morally. But I think that's a that's a that's an insane project because <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is doubt the whole system, the whole set of practices. Mm. That said, I think that um, there's two things that are probably wrong or excuse me, objectionable about the Strassonian sort of project. One is I think Strassen's wrong to think that if you adopt the skeptical perspective, you have to immediately adopt the objective attitude toward everybody. I think that most of the reactive attitudes, i.e. the attitudes that shape our interpersonal exchanges, um, especially in intimate friendships, as you, you point out, um, are completely independent of issues having to do with free will. Mm. I think that there's only a handful mainly the ones Strassen talks about, resentment, indignation, and moral anger that are dependent upon the belief in free will. So what I would argue is that even if you adopted the skeptical perspective, most of the reactive practices are still in place. And those few that um, turn out to be unjustified, I would argue are, are tend to be suboptimal to begin with, and we could adopt replacement attitudes. So instead of blame, we feel disappointment. And disappointment plays the same role or carries out the same function in our interpersonal relationships that blame would have. And that um, you could do all of that without adopting the objective attitude toward individuals. Hmm. That said, um, two more things if I can, because I think it's all very interesting and I've yeah. struggled with the Strassonian uh, view. Um, I think it's also helpful to differentiate between what I would call the, uh, this is Sean Nichols makes this distinction between the narrow reactive uh, responses and the broad reactive attitude. So the narrow reactive attitudes are the ones that you immediately experience um, in some intimate relationship. So let's say someone wrongs you in an intimate relation 
um, you might immediately feel anger. Mm -hmm. You might immediately feel resentment or indignation. And I would argue that, look, I'm not a monk. I haven't completely eradicated myself of these emotional reactions. And there might be good evolutionary reasons why they've evolved. And it's not beyond me to sometimes feel them when someone has wronged me or harmed a loved one, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the narrow um, emotional reaction. That's the emotional reaction you feel in the moment. The broad reactive attitudes are the ones that you could rationally reflect upon and you could ask whether or not they're justified. And from a more dispassionate, rational perspective, you could evaluate. And those are the ones that I think are really important for public policy. Those are the ones that are really important for criminal justice. So even if I have a reactive attitude of resentment or moral anger in, in an intimate setting where someone uh, wrongs me, that doesn't necessarily mean that that should carry over into public policy and we should adopt um, retributive practices when it comes to criminal justice. Hmm. Because from the broader perspective, I might be able to reflect upon my, my, my narrow attitudes and say that although I experienced it, although I felt it, um, that emotional reaction was philosophically unjustified. Hmm. And so what I could do philosophically through argument through looking at and convincing myself of these philosophical views, it disavowed that, uh, that, um, into, that, um, that, that narrow uh, emotional reaction as having no justificatory force. It carries no justificatory, even though I evolutionarily experienced it, even though it was real, a uh, real emotion, I could say that that doesn't necessarily justify that reaction. And you said earlier hmm. that when you have expressed those you know, retributive impulses or those uh, reactive attitudes that quite often in your personal lives, they didn't turn out well, mm -hmm. right? So even though you had them, you could acknowledge that maybe they weren't justified. Mm. The last thing I'll say is, um, and this is a project I still haven't written up and I'm really like, I'm dragging my feet because I've been <laughs> saying it for years and I want to yeah. I want to write it up in a paper is I want to write a paper that um, I want, you know, sometimes I come up with titles first. I want to call <laughs> something like the weird moral psychology of Strawsonians, where weird refers to this concept in social psychology that is now very popular, um, that talks about um, social psychological studies that have been done at Stanford or Harvard <laughs> on what are called weird populations, Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic. Yeah. And so what some people are discovering is that in psychology, particularly social psychology, is that we've done these studies on weird populations, primarily rich, well-educated uh, students, undergrads at, at, Harford, at Harvard <laughs> and Stanford and Yale and Cornell, um, um, which are weird in two ways, weird in that they're Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic, but weird in that the total population of humanity, um, this population is an anomaly. The vast majority of human beings that exist and have existed throughout time were not Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic. So this is a very small sample. And so psychology has primarily been studying this population. And then it's claimed these universal claims about human nature. You know, so you have the Stanford experiments, the marshmallow experiment, <laughs> um, the prison experiment, the Milgram experiments, 
the shock experiments. We've all learned these as you know in college. And then we sort of make these broad statements about human beings and human nature. Well, what we're turning out is that, well, in non-weird populations, people actually express different yep. reactions. Yeah, imagine um, that. And maybe we were a little biased by simply studying. So one of the things I might want to look at is I think Strassonians assume that we can't live. We can't abandon these reactive attitudes. Mm. Um, but the, the kind of reactive attitudes that Strassen typically focuses on and that Strassonians have typically focused on are very individualized, mm. exist within a system of individual moral responsibility that follow the sort of practices of ill will that Strassen stresses, mm. that these types of reactions are justified when they stem from an agent who is competent and expresses a kind of ill will, et cetera. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very modern set of practices. And if you look at things like, um, you know, um, you mentioned Temler Summers before. Temler Summers has done a lot of work on honor cultures. Mm -hmm. Honor cultures have a completely different set of moral practices. Honor cultures um, exist primarily in places where there's no strong centralized government. And so instead of justice being carried out by a third party, the state, mm. which is what happens in our, pro you know, like you wrong me. Well, I don't engage in vigilanteism. I go and I go to the police and then the courts adjudicate justice. So justice is handed over to this third party, which is presumably objective. We follow individualized practices. Um, what's existed in other moral realms is nothing like that. Mm. Whereas if you harm me, I could basically uh, exert retribution on any member of your clan. So think of the Hatfields and the McCoys. One Hatfield kills one McCoy, then it's justified in retaliating and killing any other Hatfield. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter whether they deserve retribution <laughs> or that they engaged in some wrongdoing or expressed some ill will. No. Um, and, and Temler likes to point out other examples of, of, of this that hang over in modern society. Like when in baseball, yep. one batter hits a home run, sometimes the pitcher beans the next batter in the head, not because they did anything wrong, but because anyone on the opposing team is a legitimate target. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not based on ill will or Strassonian um, uh, practices, because uh, that individual doesn't deserve in modern moral context any kind of punishment. Yeah. Um, so what I would might argue is that the Strassonian might be mistaken in two ways. They might be mistaken in that they believe that these practices are ineliminable, that society would crumble without them, because they might be biased toward our set of practices when historically there have existed a number of different other moral ecologies that evolved to serve different moral purposes and carried out and carried out justice in various ways that resemble nothing like our current moral practices. And so um, we might be um, biased. Mm -hmm. We might be committed to a, a weird moral psychology where, we, where we're falsely assuming that this is the only set of moral practices that could exist. One that are individualized, where moral responsibility and free will ground our moral practices, where justice is carried out by third parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What ill will serves the function uh, to track dessert, et cetera. Um, and if we've evolved toward better and better practice, I acknowledge it was probably an improvement when we gave up honor cultures 
and move <laughs> toward more individualized practices. Mm -hmm. So I don't agree with Temler there. I think that that it is progress to, that we gave up those. But what I want to suggest is that if, if we could revise our moral practices in light of new thinking, philosophical innovation, argument, then maybe the kinds of arguments and reasons I give for free will skepticism and that other philosophers give um, could provide justification for modifying our current practices. And there's no reason to think that these practices that make up our current set of, of moral exchanges mm. are the ones that are the best or somehow written in nature, like the laws of nature, like gravity. Um, we know that's not true because we know other moral systems have existed. Different moral ecologies have evolved where different practices were carried out. We know that blame hasn't always served the same function in different moral uh, ecologies. Um, and, and so, that gives us good reason to think nothing's written in stone, everything is malleable. Mm -hmm. And so um, maybe Strassen is just simply wrong that these are the only practices that could exist. If we abandon them, everything would you know, go to hell. And, um, and I think he might, they might also be wrong in that the other stuff I said earlier, mm -hmm. that they could be replacement attitudes that serve the same function, but don't presuppose basic desert. Yeah, I think, um... Is it Watson who has uh, some work on uh, modifying different types of reactive attitudes? Um, yeah, I mean, Gary Watson is written. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of inspiration sometimes from um, uh, um, Owen Flanagan, who has written about us uh, um, basically moral psychology and has also written, and one of the only people really to stress the cultural ver uh, uh, variation, the cultural mm. and anthropological um, differences that have existed. And, and he's actually one of these people who comes up with the language of moral ecologies. You mm. know, he says, think of them very much like um, other types of ecologies. You know, um, the natural world evolves to its local needs. Things adapt to serve local functions. And our moral practices evolved in many places at many times um, and have changed over time and um, served different functions in different places. So if we were to approach morality and moral psychology with a lens, not just to studying weird populations, but also making sure we take um, full stock of the cross-cultural and anthropological set of ecologies that have existed both over time and still, um, in different places now. There's very few places, but you could look at Eastern cultures, you could look at um, cultures that still exist in the Amazon and the rainforest and, and, and different um, cultural heritages mm. that still engage in different types of practices. Some of them are more individualistic, some of them are more holistic, some of them disperse responsibility within the culture, some of them place it all on the wrongdoer. Um, and so, you know, the idea that everyone has the same emotional reaction, um, I think is, is a mistake. Yeah. I think we tend to think of emotional reactions as somehow evolutionary hardwired, but I argue there's a lot of variation within those cultural practices. And not only biological evolution, but cultural evolution is really important to the story of moral psychology. And when you look at actual cross-cultural moral psychology, you might be surprised by the fact 
that these practices that exist in these different moral ecologies may not resemble um, the same familiar kind of practices we find in our own. Mm -hmm. And then it makes it less, you know, it, it weakens that, that notion of the objectivity and immutability and indispensability mm -hmm. of these reactive attitudes. Yeah, yeah, you should write that paper. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be a good one. Uh, Greg, I'm, I'm noticing that we're, we're closing in on the hour and a half mark. Um, so I don't want to take too much of your time. But the, I mean, this was, you know, I scheduled the call for an hour. I think it's indicative that I didn't even realize we had gone uh, 20 minutes over. This was this was really, really great. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and, and if people haven't, uh, I, I would assume a large portion uh, of my audience, even if they want to get the book, haven't been able to get it yet. So um, that's just to say, I, I recommend they do so. And uh, and also get your new book once it's uh, available on uh, on Amazon. They're both out there now. They're both released. Okay, great, great. Well, I, I didn't know if the uh, the second one had sold out as well as the first. No, it's still out there. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, all right, well, Greg, thank you so much. Um, tell people where they can find more about you and your work. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or you can go to my website, which is uh, just my name, www.gregcaruso.com. Um, and my name is spelled with two G's, so G-R-E-G-G-C-A-R-U-S-O. Um, and you can find most of my papers there, uh, links to interviews I've done and, and uh, to my books. Okay, great. Greg, stay on the line, but um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you found that episode as entertaining and useful as I did. Um, like I said at the top, it was great talking with Greg. And I will leave links in the description below, uh, whether you're watching or listening, to all of the sources that you will need to find out more about Greg and his work. Uh, if you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. Uh, you can also help me in non-monetary ways by sharing the show on Twitter or on social media generally, rating it on Apple Podcasts, liking this video on YouTube or subscribing uh, via YouTube or your RSS feed. You can also discuss it on your own show and link back to this one, or connect me with uh, guests or recommend topics to cover. Uh, you can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.